So guys, this is a special uh, reissue of this episode um, with Wendell Pierce. And the reason we're reissuing it is because this is a kind of long form, unedited interview that we're going to have exclusively on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash the wire stripped. That's right. Uh, so you can you can sample it here, but if you want more of these, uh, then we're going to be um, putting Chris Bauer up uh, shortly, who played Frank Sabaka in season two. Uh, and anytime we uh, do interviews now with the cast, we're going to put up uh, we're going to put them up full and exclusive uh, for you guys over at our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the wire stripped, uh, and all of the the money that you guys. Uh, uh, contribute to there uh, will either go towards the show's production or donate it to the uh, official wire charity the uh, ella thompson fund hello i'm dave and i'm kobe and you're listening to the wire stripped and this week is a very special bonus episode where we're going to play you the full interview with wendell pierce otherwise known as the book yeah we were really happy that wendell pierce could spend the time to talk to us about his involvement with the wire from the get-go so we know he's got a lot of things to say and a lot of things you've probably never heard before when you walk through the garden you gotta watch your back well i beg your pardon walk the straight and narrow track when you walk with jesus he's gonna save your soul just gotta keep the devil way down in the hole. He got the fire and the fuel. Just a quick but important note to point out that this chat with Wendell Pierce goes into all five seasons of The Wire, so there will be spoilers. Repeat, there will be spoilers. Please proceed with caution. Enjoy. We'll all be safe from Satan. So, first of all, Wendell, um, it'd be great to hear how he got involved in The Wire in the, in the first place, in the show. Well, it was a simple audition where I uh, was called in. I knew Alexa Fogel for years, and so she uh, and I um, had a rapport. She was the casting director, uh, a very phenomenal casting director. I remember it was around the time of 9-11. Went in, there were several people reading, and uh, this one day, a business partner of mine and his wife was graduating from business school. And I got in a cab to go downtown for a screening of something, and the cab driver didn't want to take me. Long story short, we got into a fight, literally, in Times Square, or just off Times Square. And, um, and then some guy on the sideline said, I started it. And so, you know, the police clipped me up and took me to uh, jail. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe it. This cab driver didn't want to take me. He takes a shot at me. I defend myself. And then all of a sudden they're taking me to jail. And it ticked me off. The reason I tell that story is I went in and out of the audition window, you can still see the smoke coming from the World Trade Center. And I, and I said, in the midst of all of this, this fucking cab driver takes a swing at me and I'm trying to, you know, just get to this screening and I can't believe this shit is happening to me. And I was recounting this story and then I get clipped 
and I go to jail, and now, you know, it's the sort of shit that cops need to really take into account when someone else says, hey, I want to bring him to jail too. I couldn't believe that shit. I got too much going on for all of this. All right, let's read the fucking scene. <laughs> you know, months later, David told me, you know, you came, remember your audition? You came in and you were bitching and complaining about being arrested, having a fight with a cab driver and how the cops messed over you. And he said, that's when you, you got the role. I was like, that's bunk, right? Right? I said, here's this actor coming in. He has, <laughs> he, he's totally not even thinking about the audition, but he's like, I, I need to vent and I need to tell you guys the shit I've been going through just to get down here to this audition the past couple of days. And I can't believe this, man. And you look out this window, you see what's happening at the World Trade Center. And this is the sort of shit the cops are focusing on. And, I, and he said, your little rant was so classic bunk that you actually got the job. You, it, it didn't matter what you read after that. Uh, we looked at each other and were like, uh, I think we just found bunk. Um, and then after that, I they called me back for my callback. They said, would you mind reading with the other actors? And it was Dominic West. And uh, then I came back and, uh, and he, you know, he was really prepared and he was off book. And uh, I hadn't memorized a thing. I'm still holding this, the sides and the script. And I kind of mumbled, oh, damn, man, you kind of kind of showing me up. You're off book and all of this. I didn't know it was going to be all. <laughs> and we hit it off right away. And, you know, we were kind of going back and forth and having a good time uh, in that reading. And the rapport that we had, I think, really uh, sealed the deal for me. Um, and and that's how I became a part of The Wire. So, I mean, that talks, that relates fantastically within your relationship with Bunk and McNulty. Can you talk about how that kind of worked? I guess it start, if, you, if you hit it off right from the start, then playing a lot of those scenes where you guys are the focus and provide so much of the drive and the force and everything just works really well. So how did that relationship work with yourself and, and Dom by vicariously, I guess, Bunk and, Bunk and McNulty? Yeah, Dominic, Dom and I hit it off right away and we were off in the hinterlands of America we weren't in Los Angeles. We weren't in New York. We were under the radar. And it was kind of a boys club every year to get to Baltimore because we would party. And um, being from New Orleans, uh, I like my drink. You know, I like to go out and party. I like to have a good time. And Dominic is just always the bon vivant. <laughs> and uh, we had a blast. Uh, the first year we were actually on, and a couple of other years, we would actually shoot the season and it wouldn't come on until we went home. So we look forward to our six months in Baltimore every year as a, a boys club to go out and, and, and have a good time, do great work and party. And Dominic and I had such a great rapport. And it started, I'll never forget, one of our, our first scenes at the bar, which it became a running theme of, of Bunk and McNulty at the bars. And the first season in particular, we would, we would have a laugh because we realized when we were uncertain about what we were doing, we just became more and more quiet. And there was one particular scene where we basically were just whispering and no one could hear anything we were doing. 
And then finally, one of us said, you don't know what the fuck this scene is about. I'm like, no, do you? No, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So it was like, and we hit it off then too, just um, as actors who realized that we weren't prepared for the scene. How much did you know about the show and where it's going to develop when you first kind of signed on? We knew nothing. One of the things I still to this day have a bone to pick with David um, David never likes to share anything with the actors ahead of time. Also, David never lets actors see playback because he feels it's going to make you so self-conscious. He feels as though if you knew something ahead of time, uh, you would play to it. You know, all of a sudden it's episode one, but you know, in episode three or four, you're going to break the case because of a, you know, because of a fountain pen. You know, so you may find the fountain pen in the first episode. If you know about what's coming, he believes actors will go, oh, look, I just found a fountain pen. And almost, <laughs> almost have the instant. Yeah, yeah you know, with twirling the mustache. and <laughs> So I told him, listen, we know how to hit our marks. We know not to turn our backs to the camera. When on stage, we don't walk off the edge of the stage. Um, so you can have faith that we won't give away a tip our hand on and plot uh, points that are coming up. But he still didn't trust us. And so he never told us anything. And I'll never forget, I met to see the first two episodes with Andre Royo and Sonia Son. And we watched the pacing of The Wire. Very much cinema verite, allow it to happen. And uh, it was not your regular broadcast television where everything has to be fast-paced and you have to solve it within a half an hour. It was the visual novel that David had said. And the pacing of it, I'll never forget, at the end of watching the first episode, I turned to Andre and Sonia and went, damn, I hope you save your money because this shit is getting canceled. <laughs> I thought, oh, my goodness, this is awful. This is, is people are going to turn it off. They're not going to stick with it. It's, it's too slow paced. I was like, damn, man, I thought I was going to be on a show that would last a little while. And little did I know, 15 years later, it would still be uh, a seminal part of uh, American television history. Yeah, absolutely. So when, how many episodes had you shot then when you watched those first two? We were maybe in the third or fourth episode maybe the fifth and uh so i mean really right at the beginning and um we were getting along you know we loved the cast we trusted the characters were really strong but david's breakthrough david simon's breakthrough was really putting on television the first visual novel like we can take the time like a a, a writer does in a novel to develop characters. And he would always tell us that. I may introduce something in the first chapter that won't play until the eighth chapter. And you have to trust that you may not be as involved as you, as you think, but it'll be a pivotal moment in the story later on. And that took a lot of patience on our part. And uh, it was also the great risk of The Wire. Would audiences hang in there? Would there be this accumulative effect? Uh, and David trusted the intelligence 
of audiences, uh, the intelligence of their humanity, really, that even though someone is from a disparate part of life, they can still have an impact on you. Because he knew that when you have a story or a world that may be different, the more specific you are, the more universal it becomes. So corner boys in Baltimore were never going to be looked at the same again. And then, you know, the equivalent of someone saying, well, you know, I would have never thought I would see a Bodie in Brixton, but I know him. I know someone like that. And I may be far removed from America. I'm over here in London. Uh, I may have never gone this far south. Well, Brixton is all hoi polloi now, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, but when we started, you know, I, I would have never gone this far south on the tube. And, but here I am. I actually feel connected. And it doesn't matter. Our humanity connects us that way. And um, he trusted the visual novel and that pacing and that people would put in the time. And, uh, and it pays off. It's still paying off. People pick up little nuggets now in watching it over and over that they missed in first, second, third viewings. Well, I, that's one thing we've really enjoyed, myself and Dave, the co-host of this podcast, is picking up, for example, the first time a character comes into the show. Um, right. Like a key one in season one is the first time we see Santa Clay Davies, but he has maybe five lines, but he becomes not a main right. character, but a linchpin character. Oh, yeah. Certain. Definitely a main character. Yeah, That's the other thing about David's world. He populates it with such fully fleshed out three-dimensional characters that no one's a just a, uh, a a secondary character no one you know uh, and then also how he builds the character over the over the years not only just within a season over the the entire run of the piece and i think of bug i think of that little kid um I think of that little kid who I saw playing Omar in the first season, who then becomes this weird little mini villain on the corners the next season. And then you see him near the end of uh, the run as the kid who ultimately, well, are we doing spoiler alerts or anything? Um, well, we probably wouldn't talk about season five, I mean, but I know where yeah. you're going. It was great to hear that. <laughs> and he also, you know, he ultimately plays uh, this major role that was set up five years earlier. And it's that sort of payoff that uh, people should appreciate. So, so what's your advice to people who are watching it for the first time? All the pieces fit. All the pieces matter. Don't think any conversation, uh, you know, David always said that to us. It became a renowned a mantra of the show, a title of the show, and little nut, every scene, nothing is wasted. No time, energy, effort, nothing is wasted. So with every scene, with every shot, you are given a nugget of information that will pay off, that will grow. You will, you're given a seed that will, will expand and pay off and you never know when the payoff will happen. And even when you're given a seed 
and it never is paid off within the series itself, it is nurtured in your imagination forever. And the classic one in The Wire is Rawls in a gay club. Right? You see it one time, they never go back to it, it's never explored ever again, but you should see the fans who have this entire world of roles in their head. Well, the reason they didn't go back is because of this, and that one shot is paying off dividends even now, 15 years later. It is. It's one of the scenes that for me, <coughs> just think, I just can't, it stops me dead sometimes and think, did I, did I miss something in the rest of this? Right. And then what happens is every mention of Omar or a look Rawls gives to someone in Comstat, you know, is loaded with all. Why is he so on McNulty? All of a sudden you go through that club and then you go, every scene after that for me was, is he in love with McNulty? You know, I, I used to do that all. Why well, he's so on him, you know, it does he, is he attracted to him? And he's mad that he can't be that you know, forward of a man, you know, that that his masculinity is challenged because he's fitting into the corporate, you know, restraints of being a commander. But, but McNulty is, you know, you know, uh, uninhibited, but he can't be that way. And he admires him for that and is attracted to him for that. And because of that, he gives him shit, <laughs> you know? I mean, and it's one shot for me, that one shot of him sitting in a corner booth in a gay bar, <laughs> just in well, uh, forms five years. Well, watching season one again recently, with that in mind, I remember l- looking at Rawls's desk and seeing pictures of his family. So, okay, so I was thinking, okay, so if he's gay, he's definitely closeted. Right, oh, yeah, anything. yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. My biggest regret is, my biggest regret is that I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't go further with my desk and also that I didn't take anything from the wire. I have oh, really? nothing, nothing. I walked away and I'm like, my God, I didn't take uh, my badge. I didn't take anything. I, and I can't believe it. You know, I have, we have great little gifts that we had. I, <laughs> I have photographs that I'm very uh, pleased to have, but nothing physical. It's like, I'm, you know, I'm Judy Garland, and I didn't take the fucking ruby slippers. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what, would, what would you have taken? Uh, an un- oh, unsmoked cigar? I, if, uh, no, the cigars were awful. But oh. I had I had a badge. I had a badge that uh, I wish I would have taken the badge because it was the Baltimore uh, Police Department badge, a very authentic badge mm. with Moreland, right? Mm. With Moreland and underneath um and i kind of took a piece of tape and put a b in front of it you know bunk <laughs> boiling uh it was uh, I, I i regret not having that badge that that's my biggest regret could I ask, um obviously got like, 10 minutes left would be cool to talk about your a favorite a few favorite scenes of yours that you remember from either yourself being a part of or um watching in retrospect in season one uh well this is the thing about it i'm really bad at delineating the seasons sure okay um, except except for the greeks and i know they were season two sure and uh season five i know was uh, the newspaper yeah um and, so, and the kids and the kids were season four that's right yeah and they that was for me 
I'll be very brief. For me, that was the most innovative season of The Wire, season four. Oh, really? Season four. No one had explored the nexus of where we lose our kids. Wow. No one had explored that before. Um, a little trivia, it was the season I almost quit The Wire. Oh, really? Why, we, what? Shot, we shot season four. Uh, it wasn't airing yet. I go to the rap party. This very impressive young lady comes up to me and says, Mr. Pierce, I never got to do anything with you, but I was on this season in the school, and uh, I just think you're a fantastic actor. And she was so uh, intelligent and graceful and, you know, and mature. And I said, who did you play? She said, well, I look younger than I am, but I was in the middle school. And I said, yeah, what character? And it was the character, I need to learn this, the character's name, I think it's Zenobia, who cuts the other girl's face. Right. And she was wilding out. She was the most out of control girl. And you just didn't know where it was coming from. It just, she was just, you know, you, you lose the perspective, you know, you lose a little empathy with her and all. The young lady playing the role was going to Brown University. Oh, really? On scholarship was just, a, you know, she's probably a Rhodes Scholar and a doctor today. I mean, she was brilliant. Brilliant young African-American girl from Baltimore. And I said, why the fuck aren't we telling your story? Mm. We should be telling your story. We're part of the problem. And then I went back and I said... I, told my agent, I said, I think, uh, I think I want to leave the show because this, we're part of the problem. We should be telling the actors, the story of the actors playing those kids is so more impressive to me. Then the season came out and the exploration of the pain of those characters, the pain of those kids, the worlds they're struggling to live and survive and develop in and I realized that the violence, that the, the negative uh, worlds that we were portraying were not arbitrary, mm. that it was as it were holding a mirror up to nature, that there was some self-examination. If you really want to solve a problem, you have to be able to look at it authentically. Yeah. And then I realized how powerful the show was in that moment. Um, and that's why I think the fourth season is so great. We know exactly where we lose our kids, where we create those desperate people of the future who then act out, you know, um, and how people, how people thrive from keeping an underclass. Yeah. You know, thrive. Our education system was destroyed because people said, let's make it inclusive. And we have from that moment on in America said, oh, you want to make it inclusive? We're going to do everything possible to destroy the education system. So you want it? You got it. But now we're going to destroy it from within. Uh, best scenes. The first one that comes to mind that I love watching, yeah. just as a viewer, is Barksdale and Stringer's last scene when they know they're both going to kill each other. <laughs> Oh, that's in season one, three. That's in season three, though. Yes, that's in season three. Yes, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I'm, I, like I'm saying, this is not. Uh, this is all over the board. Sure. That is that is one of the greatest scenes in English speaking uh, uh, TV, theater, TV, or film. Right. It's on par with The Godfather. It's on par with uh, 
you know, uh, um, Shakespeare, I guess. Uh, yeah, Shakespeare, absolutely. Uh, but I mean, specific performances. Hmm. Richard the Third by Olivier. Uh, uh, um, you know, uh, Gilgood and Olivier in Julius Caesar. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis as Lincoln. Mm. Is uh, Idris Elba and Wood Harris in that scene? I put that on. I that's up there with Heat with De Niro and Al Pacino. That yeah. scene is phenomenal. Also, another scene with a duo like that: Michael K. Williams and Michael Potts, Omar and um, Brother Muzon. Mm-hmm. absolutely stunning work for me the two scenes that defined my entire experience of the wire was one the fuck scene in season one <laughs> david came up to us as we yeah. were filming and he said listen we're they're going to be on us about cursing so um i really want to do something so we can just get that out of the way uh, they're going to say the language is too much on the show and also we're going to get this out of the way. You're going to come to the scene, you're going to look at it, you're going to go, oh, this is done wrong. Uh, you can't believe it. You're, you're working the scene, you realize, wait a minute, it was supposed to be a shooting inside, but because there's glass on the windowsill, you realize the bullet came from outside. Then you say, well, if the bullet came from outside, we may still have the bullet in here. Look at the trajectory. Here it is. If up, we find a the bullet, then you're going to go and say, well, if we have the bullet here, we might find the casing outside. And you go outside, and you're going to go, yes, I found the casing. And that's the scene. And we get to see McNulty and Bunk Moreland after their introduction be the very good detectives that they are. You're going to do that whole scene, gentlemen, but you're just going to use the word fuck. (laughs) (laughs) And he explained that to us one night while we were filming something else. And he said, the pages will come to you next week. And he actually wrote out the entire scene and wrote the fucks in there. Right. We did we did it as scripted, and then he said, "All right." Then they said, "Now you guys just do you, you know, put it wherever you want to put it, and all." And it's a combination of those two. Whenever we said "fuck" or our variation of the word, uh, wherever it was, you know, and uh, it is uh, uh, one of the scenes that I'm proudest of. The other scene was David holding information from me, or actors. Uh, didn't mean that actors didn't complain. So I was sitting on the set one day and I'm like, man, I am tired of this shit. I think it's season three. Uh, I'm tired of this. Every episode, I'm chasing a gun. I'm chasing a gun. I don't understand why I'm chasing this gun. Man, I don't have anything to do with no scenes with people. It's not making any sense. Every I'm just on a wild goose chase. It's not going anywhere. It's stupid. And I've done all this research. I've met so many black cops who become cops because this not the crime does not reflect the good people in the neighborhood. And that's the way it was. And my girlfriend's father was talking about how even during segregation time when he was coming up, you know, man, even the thugs knew their place in community because he was called schoolboy. And, you know, if he was somewhere he wasn't supposed to be, they'd say, uh-uh, uh-uh, we're not going to go to school, but we know you are. Get out of here because we knew you were going to become something. Uh-huh. And that's, all, that's the sort of shit that I want to get in here. And I'm trying to... And I get a tap on my shoulder as I'm bitching and complaining, sitting in my chair. George Pelicano said, uh, Wendell, you're chasing the gun because it's going to lead you to Omar. <laughs> and I went, oh, my God. And then he said, the very thing you're talking about is what I'm writing in the script. 
Yeah. Can I take some elements of that? I'm like, absolutely. And then he wrote uh, one of the greatest scenes. I actually get choked up about this because I love Michael so much. Uh, one of the greatest scenes I've ever done in my career. And that's when Bunk meets Omar on the bench in season three. No more bodies. No more bodies. That's the scene I call it. And I talk about how we're from the same neighborhood and all. That scene defined all five years for me. For those of There's a great scene when you first meet Omar in, uh, and you're talking about he, he recognized you from being a couple of years higher than him and right. that you used to play lacrosse. Yeah. I was in season one. Right. And it leads up and then I understand I interview him again. A man must have a code, you know, when yeah. I got that line. And even after that scene, I get him out of jail and, but it was that scene that really defined who we were and really defined um, uh, the black men and women that I had done research with, uh, why they became cops, you know, the nobility okay. in that and all of, you know, we knew what we had. We have a great neighborhood. This is, you know, and you're messing it up, you know, uh, and it's because of you. And there were so many cops that I knew that would, uh, black cops, African-American cops, that was the impetus for them to become a police officer because they said, this isn't reflective of the community that I know. And it's such a small percentage. And I want to do this for the Mr. Joes and the Miss Anns who have nurtured me and loved me like my parents all my life. And uh, they deserve better. They get up every day and work hard and they deserve better. And that's why I became a police officer. And so that scene reflects it. So those two scenes define it for me, Brother Muzon and uh, Omar, those scenes, um, and and um, Stringer and uh, Barksdale, those scenes. Barksdale. I would also, man, when Marlo took someone out, <laughs> you know, breathe, you know, <laughs> breathe, Joe, the, the yeah. execution of Prop Joe. And then we have to give props to Snoop. How my hair look, Mike? Yeah. I mean, everybody said, how my hair look, Mike? You know, it's I hear that and it just sends chills up my spine. You look good, girl. Yeah. And you know, so, <laughs> so um, it's amazing to me. Well, one, uh, just going back to season one, one storyline that you have, which I think is super powerful for Bunk, is the aftermath of Kima um, yes. getting shot. Yeah. Now here, can you talk a bit about that scene before we? Before yeah, we, uh, I'll give you a little more time too. Um, that was the one time as actors. I don't know if it came from the studio, but as actors, we said, "David, you can't." People openly expressed it. Kima was going to die, and it was over. And we were just like, no, no, you can't. You know, you can't, you know, you can't kill her off. First of all, Sonia is brilliant and she's great. And, oh, and we God. need her. I mean, what a wonderful and interesting woman. What a wonderful and interesting actor. What a wonderful and interesting character. We need all of that. So you cannot kill her off. Uh, and now we understand that David was ready to kill anybody off at any time uh, because that's not how real life goes. And so he's not going to play towards television world, you know, where it's a great character, so they have to go on. But he, he gave in to that because, you know, uh, 
Omar was supposed to just be a recurring role that come on a couple of times and that's it. So they knew that he's, he's not, he's not stupid. <laughs> you know, he knows a good character when he sees it. But with Kima, we, uh, she was going to die. And we said, oh, no, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. And then David said something that to this day uh, was a bone of contention between he and I remember Sonia especially. He said, well, you know, um, you know, she's so great. You should keep her. He goes, yeah, you know. He said, she's so hopeful. She represents, you know, she should pull through. She he said, but, you know, in this world, there is no hope. I'll never forget the lunch. He said that we were sitting having lunch shooting. And Sonia said, excuse me? She said, you know, in these, in these neighborhoods, man, there's no hope. And she went off on David Simon. How dare you say something like that? No hope. You wouldn't have a fucking show if it wasn't for the hope in these neighborhoods. Half your actors come from neighborhoods like this. No hope. I represent the hope of my neighborhood. I was out there. I was strung out. No hope. I wouldn't even be here if there wasn't. Oh, man, it was just... I, and, you know, David said, well, yeah, but, you know, there's still, I mean, look at what's happening. How could, that's how dare you, David? Oh, yeah, she let him have it. And uh, and to David's credit, he, he, I think that had some impact on him. And then, you know, I, and he kept the character. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I actually, my response to it is seeing that um, we were going to lose her. You know, I knew that, I think, you know, we shot a lot where we knew she, we lost her. So you saw um, the impact of losing someone very, very important to you in the world of, uh, of the police, uh, in the personal world and all. So, uh, and I think we shot all of that before they went back and shot and where she didn't die. You know, yeah. Right. So it's very interesting. I think everything you see, um, the actors were prepared, had prepared the scene that someone says she's gone, and you see us react. You know, that aftermath is such great detective work from from your side on the streets, oh, yes. um, following particularly, and also in the in the MCU in the in the detail. You have um, Lester Freeman working his yes. side, and you two guys. Come it's almost like a it's almost like a pincer. Yes, it's uh, to get. it's really it's really so, brilliant in the way that um, uh, uh, Lester and I come together. You really see once again the expertise of these flawed men and women. Uh, but the one thing that they have in common is the fact that they're good police, as we say. So, and that's yeah. established early on, and especially there like a pincer movement where we get there and, you know, and, uh, you know, a little fat finger when it comes to IDing, you know, um, you, you see anybody in this lineup, Kima, that might be the one. And, you know, I give it a little fat finger, uh, you know, later on a little bit where we're going to, we're going to test that. I always point that out when people say, Oh, you're the voice of reason with McNulty, you know, at the end of the, in the fifth year, you know, you're, you're the moral compass. And I said, do you remember the fat finger I gave to Kima in, in year one? It's like, I'm ready to do anything too to solve a crime, you know? So that's, that's the reason I actually don't turn Dominic in. Uh, but, and it also established Lester as being the real criminologist, a real, a real yeah. scientist 
of criminology uh, and, and, and sent him on a great introduction to that character, you know, because he was brilliant uh, in feeding me what I needed to know and finding out who was responsible for Kima being killed at first and but being uh, wounded eventually. Yeah. Bunk, I think... Sorry, Bunk. Yeah, feel <laughs> free. Bunk. I, I, I uh, accept Wendell. it. I will accept it uh, all my life. <laughs> Um, is there anything you want to let us know what you what you're doing next? Because um, I do obviously mm-hmm. want to point people in the direction of your yeah, of your, I am, of your um, existing and future projects. Uh, I am uh, doing Jack Ryan for Amazon. Oh, really? It's coming out next year with John Krasinski. I'm playing James Greer, a reincarnation of uh, or, or re uh, revision of James Greer. I'm not an arrow in the Navy and. Uh, in in his 70s uh i'm a young uh officer at central intelligence agency and so i'm very proud of that i was shooting in montreal and uh, morocco and uh, paris uh, most of the year and so that's coming out in amazon um but in new york i'm going to be doing a play at 59 east 59 um some old black man it's a two-hand play about my aging father. I'm a history professor uh, at university who has to deal with his father, who he brings up from Mississippi, and he's going through his dementia, uh, where they have to reconcile their their relationship before his father loses his life. And that's going to be a play I'm doing in wow. New York in February. And uh, right now I am working with, uh, I'm doing a show called Suits. Uh, with a young lady, yes. Meghan Markle, was dating some uh, some young lad over there in London that we hear so much about. He has red hair and uh, uh, and he has a red little, head, yeah, and he has a little uh, pedigree. I hear. <laughs> so, um, so I'm doing that show, Suits, which is a uh, which is a fun um, you know cutthroat uh, show about lawyers and the sharks that they are. Yeah, and a little bit of a legal okay. soap opera also. Um, so staying busy. I like to do uh, plays and television. And a film I just did called One Last Thing with Journey Smollett, where I am a okay. dentist, a, young, a man who is isolated and alone and trying to find the one person that he's been searching for forever, and that's his daughter. Uh, he had a breakup with the mother years ago, and he has never... He, he finds out that he's a daughter. He was suspicious that he might. And then he finds out that she exists and finds her, and he tries to um, repair their relationship. So uh, I'm staying busy. And that's it from us this week. Thank you so much to Wendell Pierce for taking the time to chat with us. He's such a cool dude. And if you enjoyed the episode, please do remember to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review telling us that you loved it. Uh, we're looking forward to reading each and every single one of them. And if you just want to chat with us, uh, send us a message. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. It's at The Wirestrip. Or send us an email. It's burner at thewirestrip.com. Once again, thank you to Wendell for taking the time to us. Um, he has a very busy schedule and we know, well, we enjoyed it. So we hope you guys did too. And big thanks to Tom, the third member of the Wire Stripped crew, who's our crack producer. And thanks to Izzy Lawrence for the logo and graphics. 
And thank you to Martin and Sam who do the brilliant Way Down in the Hole cover that is our theme song. Excellent. Well, we'll see you next time, guys. Bye. Bye.